Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. My guest today is a global leader in brand marketing communications, a fellow educator, a blogger, an author, and a dad. There is a long list of the brands and agencies where he has held senior positions over the years, including but not limited to Johnson & Johnson, Saatchi & Saatchi, BCW, and his current position as Chief Customer Solutions Officer at IPG Health. In fact, at one point, he founded and built his own agency that he later sold to Publicis, which I find very impressive. He's been called a true Renaissance man and has written several books, including The Experience Effect, The Experience Effect for Small Business, The Personal Experience Effect, Out and About Dad, and the award-winning book we will talk about today, The Conscious Marketer. Welcome to the podcast, Jim Joseph. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so psyched to be here with you. And I'm excited to talk to you as well. I always like to start by asking my guests where they're from. I'm originally from upstate New York, but the upstate New York that's really upstate New York, Syracuse, uh, went uh, went to grade school, high school in Syracuse, and then college at Cornell. So I'm I'm an upstate guy. You are an upstate guy. You actually... Usually people go, come from someplace else to go to Cornell, and I'm very impressed that you went to Cornell, by the way. So now I may be a little bit on edge here as I ask my questions. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to a Cornell, a Cornell graduate. Um, how did you wind up on this marketing path? You know, I was one of those kids, and I can't really explain it, but I always knew I wanted to go into marketing. Even really? as a young kid, yeah, even as a young kid, I would... You know, flip through magazines and just read the ads. I would read the back of cereal boxes during breakfast. I was fascinated with television advertising. And I was just always so curious how they knew to write that headline and to come up with that visual. I mean, I, I was always fascinated by that. So I had a very clear path at a very young age, which I know is bizarre, especially in marketing, because a lot yeah. of people <laughs> kind of fall into marketing. You know, they don't necessarily seek it out. But I, I knew, and I, I think it's the mix of the, and I wrote about it in my book, the mix of the art and the science that I always found so compelling and interesting. Yeah, you know, and I want to talk, I'm going to go back to that art and science um, because I was one of the things that I took note of because as I was reading this book, and, and I, I do want to talk about the book, um, the whole time I was reading it, I was shaking my head up up and down. And then I kept highlighting and highlighting. I thought, this is craziness. Um, you said so many things, advertising has not is not dead. It's just changed, which um, having been on the advertising side of this for so long, I, I couldn't agree more. But I want to start with how you call marketing a spectator sport. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I love observing what's going on in the in the marketplace and in pop culture and how pop culture influences marketing and how marketing influences pop culture. And I think by watching all of that activity, making it a spectator sport, you can then learn reapply, reassess what you're going to do for your brand and how you want to market your brand. So I think if you make it a sport and you make it a hobby and I make it a daily hobby to just observe what's going on in the world, it makes us all better at our job as marketers. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I know um, you also talked a lot about 
paying attention as a prerequisite for all of this, which is one of my personal pet peeves, because I don't think anyone's paying attention anymore. Everyone's got their heads in their phones. Right. And their heads down buried in their work. And you need to like stick your head up, look around, see what's going on and see how things have changed so that you can keep current. Nothing stays the same, never has, but even more so now it changes at such a lightning pace that if you're not paying attention and keeping up, then the marketing you're doing is much less likely to resonate with people. No, totally, totally. So you wrote The Conscious Marketer in 2020. And I believe if I check this correctly, it was published in May of that year, of that very tumultuous year. Was this a pandemic project or just a coincidence in timing? (laughs) Well, what's so funny is I actually had written the book almost a year and a half prior to that. And if anybody's ever written books, you know, the process is kind of long and a little bit out of our control. So I reached a couple of delays with the publisher to the point where I kept updating it as the months were going by to make sure that it was staying current because things change so frequently. And then lo and behold, here I am, that person who's launching a book, a marketing book, a business book, no less, in the middle of a pandemic, which is not what I planned at all. I mean, who does, who does that? <laughs> when have we ever faced a pandemic for that matter? But, but in a weird irony, it turned out that the book was even more relevant mm-hmm. because we were in the middle of a pandemic and in, in the middle of a phenomenon that none of us had ever experienced, never thought we'd ever experienced, that completely upended our lives and completely upended how brands should be communicating and engaging with their customers and their consumers. So in an ironic twist, it turned out to be a great time to launch a book about conscious marketing. No, that's I, it's exactly what I thought. I thought it seems to me that what you talk about in the book is more relevant than ever. So tell us, what is conscious marketing according to Jim Joseph? Yes, conscious <laughs> marketing at its very root is having a very keen awareness and even a hunger for that awareness of what's going on in the world, what's important to your constituents, both your employees and your consumers, and taking that into effect in how you engage with them, using that as part of your direction for how you want to market to them, communicate to them, and bring them into your company or your brand. It's literally being conscious of what's going on in the world and not marketing in a vacuum and using that information that changes on a daily basis, we know that, to continually alter your marketing. I love it. I love it. You talk also talk about consciousness and empathy as being interchangeable. It is. And empathy comes hand in hand with consciousness for sure. Because if you're going to be aware and if you're going to understand what's going on in the world, what's going on with your consumers' lives, how they're living their lives, the struggles they're going through, then you have to be able to be empathetic. And you have to be able to... Live in their shoes, walk in their shoes, as they say. You have to be able to do that if you're going to be conscious. So they they go hand in hand. And one of the things that I've been talking about a lot lately, I mentioned it in the book as well, is I often get asked when you're recruiting people, what's the number one trait that you look for? And my answer was always for years was always creativity. Because I felt like creativity was how you problem solve and how you differentiate and how you advance and grow. And that is still all true, but creativity has become table stakes in our 
in our industry. You, you <laughs> have to be creative or you're not going to be successful. But what is not yet table stakes, although I hope it becomes that at some point, is the ability to be empathetic and to have empathy and to really put yourself in those people's shoes and really market to them because you really understand them better than any other brand around. And you have a unique way of understanding how you can add value to their lives. That is what I interview for when I'm interviewing people. And that's what I think is a huge determinant of success in, in this industry. Yeah. I mean, I in the industry and in life in general, when you think about it, because it's, right. we get so insular thinking, we're only going to look at the world from how we see it. And right. yet that's especially in marketing. It's not how we see it. It's how our customers see it. And right. we may we may be our customer, but you know, nine times out of ten, we're not. Right, right. Yeah. And it's one of the dangers of our of our profession, quite honestly, is because we get so wrapped up in our brand, whether we're on the client side and we're literally a brand manager, or we're on the agency side and we're coming up with programs to help market that brand. We get so wrapped up into it and we we live it all day long, all night long, sometimes, depending on <laughs> what we're going through. And it's easy to forget that our consumer doesn't. Our consumer does not live our brand all day long. They live their life and their struggles and their, their milestones and their successes and their, and their weaknesses. That's what they live. So you have to get out of your brand if you're going to be able to add value to their lives. I love it. I love it. You also talk, and I thought this was really interesting, the difference between taking a stand and being conscious, because I think you have a different definition of conscious and I, and I completely agree with it. But I think the we hear that word and right away we think that it is synonymous with taking a stand and and that is not really what you write about in there. Could you talk about that? Sure. I, I talk to clients about this all the time. And it's one of the modern day struggles of brand marketing, I would say, in the last few years is, do you have to take a stand on socio-political, somewhat personal, in some cases, issues that are affecting the world and that are affecting the world of your consumers? Do you have to take a stand? Because we've seen many brands take a stand and be pioneers in that area, be followers in that area. And, and reap many benefits as a brand as a result. My whole point is that you don't have to take a stand, but you have to understand how your consumers feel about that issue. And you have to take that into account in how you market and engage with them. Doesn't mean you necessarily have to put a stake in the ground and say that you're one way or the other, but you have to know how they feel about it. So that you can be sensitive to it, you can be empathetic to it, as we were saying, and that you can understand how it fits in with their lives. Now, if it makes sense to take a stand, and it's part of your core values as a brand, and it makes sense for your brand because of the business you're in to take a stand, and it aligns with your consumers' attitudes and values and, and perceptions, then all go for it. Take the stand. It's probably going to be a very smart thing to do, not only for your consumers, but probably for your employees as well but only if it makes sense in that manner. But either way, you have to have an awareness of it and a consciousness of it. Yeah, because we have this thing in there called social media. And if you're not aware, <laughs> <laughs> if you're not aware, um, you're gonna be aware, you're gonna be made aware of, of, of what it is you're doing or you're not doing right, in real right. time. There's no choice, no choice in the matter anymore. 
There's, there is no choice. You also um, talk about being conscious rather than transparent. Another word that gets thrown around a lot, transparent, transparent. Can you talk about how you see that difference? They're probably partners. Consciousness and transparency <laughs> are probably partners, but they are they are two different things. Uh, Transparency is all about being real about what your values are as a brand and real about what you hold important to your company and to your brand and being real about how you communicate that to all of your constituencies. That's transparency, you know, providing data, providing a point of view, updating with news, not not hiding things or burying things or, or dancing around things, but being clear and clean and real about it. Real is a great word to, to use there. That goes hand in hand with consciousness because in order to be transparent, you have to have a, a consciousness. But just being conscious doesn't mean you're necessarily transparent, unfortunately, but they're good partners. They're very yeah, good no, partners. no, but that's really a great point because you can be conscious, but that doesn't mean that you're going to show any transparency whatsoever. Right, I'm just right. thinking about different examples out there. You write about the millennial mindset and how this connects with this whole idea of conscious marketing. He's talking about Gen Zs these days. So I, I keep forgetting <laughs> that the millennials are still there because everyone's so obsessed with our next generation that's coming up. Right, right. Well, what's interesting is we tend to focus on millennials as this age cohort. Yeah, they were born between this year and that year. And right now they're between this age and that age. And we tend to think about them as an age group. But the truth is that just happens to be when they were born. Their impact is much broader than that because loosely speaking, they're one of the first generations that influence not only those younger than them, but those older than them. Prior to the millennials, it was always the generations influencing down age. The boomers influenced the next generation, which influenced the next generations. The, the millennials are really the first ones that influenced up. They brought technology solutions to their older cohorts, older family members, parents, grandparents. Uh, they brought innovation to those, co to those cohorts. And they also influenced downward. And what I find amazing about the, the millennials, because I believe it's a mindset, not, not an age. I, I believe I'm a millennial, even though I don't fall in that age bracket. It's, it's a mindset that is all about not wanting to compromise but not in a bad way. That, that's not a bad statement. And we tend, to, we tend to attribute some sort of negatives to the millennial generation that they feel entitled or they're, you know, they're selfish and they're self-centered. I don't buy into that at all. What I buy into is that they don't believe in compromise. Why should I stand on the corner in the pouring rain and try to hail down a cab and then have to pull cash out of my, out of my pocket and go through that whole messy transaction when I can just sit in my apartment, I can order on the phone. I'll know when it comes. I can walk in and then I don't have to transact any money because it's already preloaded. That's no compromise. And they've applied that in so many industries. And, and as a result of that, have driven innovation and have driven convenience and quality of life, which that's pretty amazing. And that's what I believe is the millennial mindset, that constantly driving innovation, the pursuit of better the pursuit of better quality of life. There's nothing wrong with that. And that has influenced, we do talk about the younger generations now, more so because they're now starting to become economically powerful. They carry a lot of those same, those same mindsets as well. 
Yeah, no, it's really interesting that you said that because especially about the millennials, you know, I, I have heard people just trash them for years about this millennial thing. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I've been teaching these millennials and I, I don't see that. I, I don't see that with my students. Um, I actually have seen a generation that makes me feel a little bit better about what's going on in the world. And maybe this there's, there's hope for it. And, and I, I really relate to what you said about um, because I am clearly not a millennial, not even close to it. But a lot of what they say, I do have that mindset. I have that same mindset of exactly, which um, yeah. I think they they've got it completely right in there. Um, no, and to that point, I see with my students. I see with the folks that I work with. Literally, I I look at them and say, "Wow, if I had been that smart <laughs> and that aware." And that worldly, I know that's sort of an odd old word, word, but worldly, if I'd been that way at their age, I, I can't even imagine what would have happened in my life. We were so, I, I'll speak for myself. I was so naive and so um, unexposed to things. You know, I, I was steep on a learning curve at, a, at that age, whereas they so, are so far ahead on the learning curve. And that's why they're advancing innovation. And I, I see the folks that work, I see the students and I just, I marvel at how smart they are and, and how uh, intuitive they are in many ways. No, I, I agree with you hundred percent. When I was the age of the students that I teach, I was much more concerned about going to my job so that it paid me enough money so that I could have fun. And I was concentrating much more on that <laughs> than I was on, on, on the world's problems, which may be why we're all in the mess that we're in now. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Because uh, I know I'm not alone in that. You also write about the role of the CEO in this and how that's changed. Because you know, it, b- before I even before you even answer that, I, one of the things I just wanted to bring up is how much also, which ties in with this, things have changed. You know, I, I've been in this business a long time, and brands never took a stand. It wasn't even even as an individual, you kept. I kept my personal beliefs to myself within the corporate environment with it. And nobody really cared. Nobody asked me what else I did as long as I helped the bottom line. And that's all changed. So it's changed for individuals and it certainly has changed in the roles of, of the CEOs. So can you talk about that? I love this chief consciousness officer. Right, right. That's so very true. When I started my career out at Johnson Johnson, I was in very traditional brand management. My first assignment was in Johnson's baby products. I mean, how more classic can you get than that? We would never take a stand, never take a stand on on a socio-political issue for fear of alienating a huge portion of our target audience. We just completely avoided it. In fact, I remember vividly, I remember a very early assignment. I felt such victory because I convinced them to include the dad in one of the print ads for Johnson's baby products. Because up until then, it was always about the mom, always about the mom. And I felt like that was such a big victory because we we're starting to show the progressiveness of, of families. Like, hey, dads do take care of babies too. But we would never like, and that was even considered sort of risky. You know, that's how sensitive we were back in the day. Now you, you almost have to, if it's related to your product and to your brand, you almost have to not only incorporate it into your marketing, but perhaps even make a statement about it, perhaps if it's, if it's close to, to the business and that is often the CEO. And, you know, back in the day, the CEO was much more visible internally 
not so visible externally. There were some few high profile examples, but for the most part, they weren't they weren't very publicly vocal and they weren't in the position where they were representing the values or the culture of the of the business. Maybe the maybe the mission of the business, but not the values and the culture and and representing the employees. Now they are. And and future employees and consumers look to the CEO to see if that person is representing their employee base, if they're representing the values of the company, are they aligned with with my values? Do I want to buy into that brand or buy into that company to go work for based on the CEO? And we've seen many, many examples where companies and brands have, have prospered or not based on the activities of the CEO, purely. So not only have they become kind of the chief consciousness officer, because they have to be the ones that are front-facing of all of these issues and monitoring them, but they're almost also the chief brand officer. They're the vocal spokesperson of, of the brand and of the company, and they represent the brand. And there's like a, even just recently with a crisis in the Ukraine, we've seen a lot of CEOs that have uh, been that face of their company and what, and what they represent. Yeah, no, as you're you're speaking this, all I could think of, they didn't have Twitter accounts. And I just, in the back of my head, I'm thinking of Elon Musk, who is in the has been in the news because of his relationship with Twitter um, and buying into the stake there and how that's influencing things and and being on the board and not being on the board and how does this fit in with our values and what's going on here? It's it's just it's a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different ballgame. He's he's the extreme, of course, but you know. When it comes to having a Twitter account, that's for sure. <laughs> for sure. It, interestingly, we just last night in my class at NYU, we were talking about how do you forecast sales and and how does your marketing allow you to forecast sales based on your marketing activity? But then the flip of the conversation is, but what are the other factors that can also affect your, your sales forecast? And, and you have to be very conscious of what those are. And the number one item that the students all said right off the bat was the CEO. I mean, literally it was the first thing they said is that the CEO's activities can affect your sales. Yes. And that's never been true until maybe the last five, six years, but it's certainly true now. It's certainly true now. And again, we can go back to the consciousness aspect, what's happening in the world, but also it's that social media influence. Right. It's right. that 24-7. The, platform that, they have. the exactly. platform, the platform that we all have, really, when it comes down right. to it. You also um, talk about doing it on purpose, which I love because I think it's more than a marketing lesson. It's it's kind of a life lesson. Can, can you talk about that? Sure. Sure. Well, well, purpose marketing has been a bit of a buzzword now, probably for 15, 18 years or so. But it started out very lofty. You know, purpose was a, you know, a capital P or all cap all caps purpose, because it was all about saving the planet, uh, big, lofty, global issues that brands would rally behind and support. Climate change, clean water, education, access to healthcare, food supply, food chain, sustainability, and big, lofty things that no one person, no one company, no one year is going to solve for. But a collective effort would would bring progress. Now, and this was happening before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic really accelerated it. Purpose is now a a lowercase p. 
and it's much more, it's much more local. It's much more personal. It's much more immediately impactful. And it's all about how that brand or that company can be contributing back to their community. You know, how can they help their constituents, the town they live in, the country they live in, or where they have markets around the world? What can they be doing to give back? Now, they haven't abandoned the higher, loftier things. It's, a, it's an and, not an or. But purpose has become much more personal and, and much more about, you know, helping those that you are serving, which, which I love. And, and I believe the really good marketers weave that purpose, that lowercase purpose into everything they do. Every single thing they do, they've walked, they should have walked away from promotion. They should have walked away from traditional product advertising and now lead with purpose so that everything they do is about adding value and giving back and contributing, which ultimately builds brand loyalty probably more effectively than, than those other traditional methods did at the time. Yeah, especially when, again, going back to what we talked about before, when you're looking at these growing demographics of the millennials and now Gen Zs, which is more important to them than certainly my generation didn't really care about that at that point in time. I think a lot, no. I hope a lot do now, but um, <laughs> but but it, it really, it kind of shifts, it shifts everything. Or even if, even if people did, they didn't attribute it to a brand or a right. corporation as having responsibility for it. It was a personal thing or they would join an organization or there were other avenues, I suppose. But the millennial mindset believes that it is the responsibility of brands and the responsibility of companies. And in fact, the data shows that millennials, the millennial mindset believes that brands and companies are going to be much more effective at solving these issues than governments are or the traditional institutions you would expect to do it. They believe that brands have more power and companies have more power. And I, I would agree with that. I, I, I agree with that too. What, what about saying this is our purpose, but not really walking the walk? Do you, what, are people catching on to that quicker? I, it, what do you think? Is our radar higher for that now? This idea of, yes, I'm, I believe in this, but not really walking the walk, so to speak. Oh, our radar is much more alert to it for sure. And to your point earlier about social media, that's how it gets monitored often is in the day-to-day -day actions. And if that purpose isn't, I'll go back to the transparency word of real. If it's not real, meaning actionable, I can see it, it's happening, then, then people don't, don't buy into it. Uh, one great example that is probably more telegraphic than others is Pride Month. There's lots of chatter about how all these brands come, you know, they become super active in the month of June and they have all these pride programs and pride initiatives and pride communications and pride products. And then, you know, June 30th comes and it disappears. <laughs> Their consumers are very alert to that now. And they actually reject the folks that are just there. They call it pride washing, I believe is the term that a lot of folks use. They reject people that just come in and come out. They want to see that you're into this and supporting it and believing in it and are real about it and purposeful about it all year long. Pride Month just happens to be when we celebrate it, but it should be every day. That's just one example of living the living the purpose, not just communicating the purpose. It's okay, not so a plaque on the employee you know cafeteria anymore. It's, it's action. 
That's the first time I heard pride washing. I've heard green washing before, but um, pride washing, that's, um, that, right. I have to keep that one in the back of my head there. Uh, you also wrote, I mean, there's so much you wrote in this book. We could talk about this for hours, but I want to touch on this one last thing before I segue a little bit into something else. You, you wrote that we can't call it digital anymore and that there's no more mobile. It's just life as we know it. Now, as someone who teaches a course at NYU entitled Digital Marketing, I could not agree more <laughs> because I keep saying, I keep saying we should change the title of this to Marketing in the Age of Digital. And of course, obviously nobody's listening to me. Maybe they will now. Maybe someone will listen to this now. Um, could we, can you talk about that? Because again, I, we're totally aligned on that. But I want to hear your viewpoint. Sure. Well, Sure. I, I've, I've been around long enough to see sort of the constant evolution of new and exciting ways to connect with consumers from a brand perspective. And when digital came along, digital in the broadest sense, I suppose it might be websites. You know, we were building the first websites at the time, which were basically just brochures that you would click onto a screen as opposed to have a piece of paper in your hand. But through that sort of evolution of of understanding what a digital world looked like and starting to market digitally, we would always talk about, well, we need a digital person on this team, or we need to give this to the digital team, or the digital agency will will, will take care of that piece. I even ran a digital agency at, at one point because <laughs> it was a separate thing. Mm -hmm. you know, there were, and, and then there were consumers who were savvy to digital, who you would target through digital. And then there were the consumers who weren't yet savvy to it, and you still marketed to them in very traditional ways. They were very siloed. And, and through the years and more recently, that is completely blurred. And it was happening before the pandemic also, but I think the pandemic really accelerated that. In so many industries that might still have not yet quite embraced whatever the word digital means. If you think about it now, everything we do is digital. I mean, this podcast right now is, is digital. The way we've been working for the last two years, if, if you're in, a, in an industry where you're able to work from home, you're working digitally. We have found the last couple of years, as people even go, walk into brick and mortar stores to go shopping, they have their mobile phone, phone with them and they're comparing prices to see if it's cheaper to get it online or faster to get it online. Or you walk in, this, this, is, this, this one kills me. You walk into a brick and mortar store to buy something and you want that immediate gratification and they order it for you online Lock. from the, from the, ah. from the register. <laughs> that one kills me. But you, there's nothing that's not, that's not digital anymore. And, and there's really nothing that's not mobile. You know, know. It, I'm on my laptop right now. That's a mobile device. So yeah. I think yeah. understanding that and the really savvy marketers are totally there, uh, but understanding that not so much just as a concept, but how that's changed people's lives and how they solve for things throughout their day and how they manage family issues. That's the consciousness that comes with the fact that we no longer live in a world where we should be calling it digital or mobile. Yeah, no. And, and you're right. I think the pandemic accelerated all of that. You know, there was a, there was a generational divide that got, that shrunk because people were forced to use things that they never did. They never shot. Some people never had ordered groceries online. I'm not one of them, right. but I always like to use the QR code. You know, people were talking that that was going to go 
away and no one was going to use it five years ago. And now it's everyone knows what a QR code is because you go into a restaurant, there's a little card there and we know we're going right. to get our menu that way. Something so simple that it's just become ubiquitous in in right. our in our lives. So I, right. I want to I want to segue a little bit away from all this marketing stuff, because one of the things that you wrote in your bio is that the most important badge that you wear is dad. And I just love that. I thought it said so much about you as a as a person or as a brand, so to speak, since we're having marketing conversations. Um, right. can, can you elaborate a little bit about that? Absolutely. I, I, like I was talking about being a kid and wanted to go into marketing. I also wanted to be a dad. I just, that's just was a life goal. I wanted to be, I wanted to be a father. And, and through the years, I, I had a rather circuitous journey, you might say, because <laughs> I, um, I married a woman, had two children, became a father but then got divorced, came out, was a single gay dad, um, and then a partnered gay dad, and then a married gay dad, uh, a very long and windy journey at a time when nobody talked about this That's kind it. of stuff. This is the early 90s. You, you, I mean, being a divorced dad was enough of a, <laughs> of a label, because it was a label. Uh, being gay was a sort of a burgeoning label. A gay dad? No, don't even talk about it. <laughs> We're not even going to acknowledge that that could even possibly exist. So, raising two children as a single gay dad, and then and then a couple um, gay dad through the, the school systems and through their milestones and doing everything that they needed to do to to evolve and grow was no small feat. And and I made it a priority. And even though I was very career oriented and and very ambitious in my career, I made decisions about my career to prioritize being a dad. I mean, you even mentioned it when you when you went through my bio. Oh, how how cool is it that he started his own agency? I did that because I needed to be home. I mean, I pulled myself out of a career track, you know, in CPG marketing so that I could be home with the kids. So that's how I started my agency. And then as they started to um, go to school and not be quite so dependent of being home, that's when I sold it. And then my, my partner, now husband, stayed at home with the kids. He gave up his career to stay at home with the kids so that I could sort of focus on my career so that we could take care of the family. So we made career choices as a family and prioritizing the kids. And, and people look at me now and say, well, that how could that be? It's like, well, that's what you do, which, which is why when folks come to me now and talk about, you know, I, I need a sabbatical, I need, I need, you know, I need to work from home more often. I need, I'm having another baby. I need, I'm like, of course you are. Of course you are. Of course you're going to, you're going to do that. You have to do that. So um, it's something that I'm, that I'm, that I've enjoyed my whole life, obviously. And now my kids are older and they're, um, my daughter's married actually. And, um, very successful and, and happy. And my son's very successful and happy. And it's a really cool place to be when you've gone through, you know, a, a struggled journey, like all of us do. It's, parenting is no easy feat for anybody. Nobody has it easy. I, I would even maintain I had a lot easier than most. Uh, but when you go through whatever your journey is, and, and it comes out with two happy adults at the end, it's very cool. Very cool. No, and that's a real testament because, you know, I, who there are people listening to this of all ages and not everyone knows how, how challenging that was 
for somebody to be in that position in the 90s. And even, I mean, it's just recently that we've started to accept that, yes, you can have two dads, you can have two moms openly. Um, So I don't think a lot of people realize how much has changed in such a relatively short period of time. Well, we were just telling a story the other. Yeah, I was just telling a story the other day about how when when I did come out, you know, I was told by many people that I would lose my job, I would lose the kids, and something as simple as Monday morning. How how was your weekend, Jim? I couldn't really answer that question. I could never really answer that question because I was gay and I had two kids and I was either a single gay dad or I had a partner at the time. I couldn't really answer that question. I couldn't have a picture out at, on my desk at the time. I mean, right. simple little things, things that caused, you know, like little traumas. I hated Mondays for that reason because everybody, how was your weekend? So we have come a really long way, thankfully, thankfully. And which is also why, you know, in the workplace and also in my life, I try to really lead all of the efforts around um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, because I learned at a really young age in my career, I went from what you will now call privileged to the next day, not so much, lost a lot of privileges overnight. And nobody should feel, nobody should feel less than, nobody. So I, I lead it wherever I possibly can. I could not agree more with you. Um, and I guess that's where the Out and About Dad book came from. Yeah, so I, I, so I wrote a book about it and uh, I got sort of talked into writing it. I, I was very hesitant. In fact, <laughs> when, I, when I finished it, I said I wasn't going to publish it. That was, it was a great experience to write it, but let's just put it on the shelf. There's no need to publish it. And I got talked into it and, and basically, basically strong-armed. And I finally said, you know, all I need is one person, just one person to say that it helped them. And mm-hmm. I assumed it would be a gay dad. I just assumed it would be a gay dad. I just need to hear from one gay dad that it helped them. And then I'm, then I'm done. I'm like, that was worth it. And I got that within the first week it came out. I got you know, a review and a note that said, you just made me realize that I can have it all, that I can have a family and I can have a career. And that being gay doesn't mean that I have to give up those things. That literally was like, I'm done. But what, what I had not expected at all is how it resonated with people from all, I'll call it flavors. I had single moms (laughs) writing to me saying, yeah, I experienced the same thing same things your husband did as a stay-at-home dad. No respect, trounced all over, you know. And and um, and couple parents, just straight couple parents saying, oh my God, we're struggling with our kids too. Like, it's so nice to see you're overcome. That makes us feel we can overcome our struggles. I mean, I got comments from all walks of life and had no idea, honestly. And it was, it was a, an amazing lesson learned for me that the um, common experience of parenting, mm-hmm. the emotional journey is the same, no matter who you are. Yeah. Everybody's situation is different, but the emotional journey and the struggles you go through emotionally, pretty universal, pretty universal. You know, it's also, it's just such a great example of this idea that when we actually talk about our feelings, we find out that we're more alike than we are different. Exactly. And it's the question is just really talking about it. Well, and I could talk to you like we could have this going on for another hour, I think. But I'm (laughs) going to I know you're (laughs) 
I know you're busy and I'd like to, I'd like to finish up with a little lightning round of questions. So are you good with sure. that? So yeah, your, your, your favorite social network? Instagram. Something people would never guess about you? I'm actually kind of shy. Yeah, everyone says that. I, I, I have a shy introverted place someplace deep inside. It used to be much more obvious when I was younger, but it's very deep inside of me now. Something people would, uh, I already said that, I'm sorry. Last series you binged. Bridgerton. <laughs> me too. Two, two sessions, <laughs> season two, two, two nights. Boom, boom. <laughs> me too, me too. I, I was up late with it. Food you can't live without. Pizza. What you miss most about pre-COVID life. The sense of freedom, I miss that. And it was probably naive freedom, but the sense that we were free to walk around and do what we needed to do. And we wouldn't have something come along and just completely destroy our lives, every single one of us. Then I, I miss that naive freedom. And, and what motivates you to get up in the morning? Okay, I'm going to go back to my interview question that I talked about earlier. Creativity. I, I am motivated by creativity. I love the creative process. I love working with people through creative problems. I, I love when, when there's a really complex challenge thrown at you and you have to come up with a creative way around it, which is 100% of the time. And when I say creative, I don't mean writing and drawing and art. I mean, creative thinking, which might include all of those things, but just the creative process is what I continue to love about, about my job. And I would say that despite all the changes in our industry and all the changes that marketing has gone through that you need to, to do to be a modern brand, the one thing that has not changed is the need, the need to be creative. That has not changed. Well, it's just a delightful way to wrap up this episode. Um, I will put all the links to your books and your uh, your website and LinkedIn in, in the um, show notes. Um, any other places that you would suggest that people reach out to you or connect with you? That would be that would be perfect. That would be perfect. Thank you. Okay, then. Well, thank you so much. This was a blast. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note. Info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember... Whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there.